1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
0: This episode of The Commons is sponsored by New College Franklin. At New College Franklin, students and professors together find their place in an educational tradition that stretches back for ages, returning to tried and true educational practices and texts that have been discarded for too long. Through a robust exploration of the great books and the classical seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, new college students see how they fit in the unfolding story of redemption. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience and continue building on the educational foundation you've started. You can learn more at www.newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. And now, The Commons with Brian Phillips.
1: Well, hello again. Welcome back to The Commons, part of the Cersei Podcast Network. I'm your host, Brian Phillips. Uh, This is episode five in season two of The Commons, and today I'm joined by a good friend of the Searcy Institute, uh, David Hicks, author of Norms and Nobility, a wonderful book on education. But today, we're talking about a mutual love that uh, David Hicks and I share, and that is uh, St. Benedict, and in particular, the rule of St. Benedict. So we're discussing uh, this very influential founder of Western monasticism uh, and the influence of his writings. So thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoy the show. And here begins my conversation with David Hicks. All right. Well, David Hicks, thank you for joining me today. It's good to have you with us.
0: It's good to be here, especially the season of the year full of Thanksgiving.
1: Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and and today we have uh, another uh, privilege to be thankful for. We get to uh, talk a bit about uh, a shared love that, that you and I both have uh, for um, St. Benedict and the rule of St. Benedict. So um, looking forward to this. So now uh, the rule of St. Benedict um, is a, it's a short work and it's one that um, I know you come back to over and over again. And, and I've had the same experience over uh, the last several years of coming back to that work. Um, so I want us to spend a good bit of time as much as time as we can talking about the Rule of Saint Benedict, but before we get to his rule, let's let's talk about uh, Benedict's earlier life. Um, uh, one of the first experiences that I'm aware of is when he went away to Rome for schooling. Um, had a very strong reaction to life in the city. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about how Rome? How did Rome suit young Benedict, and and how did that time there? Uh, shape his life later on.
0: Well, well, as you probably know,
1: Brian, uh, really, all we know about Benedict
0: his his life comes from the work by Gregory the Great, who never knew him, but was was the great pope who lived after him. And uh, and that work is an interesting work. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it, but it's not really. It's hard to tell how much of it is factually accurate and how much of it is uh, more of a literary creation that Gregory is writing to illustrate um, what the life of a saint should look like. But anyway, Mm. so what we know of his early life is that time that he supposedly spent in Rome where he had a very strong reaction against the you know, the manifest evils and violence and craziness of the city. Of course, you know, he I mean, he lived during the reign of uh, the Ostrogoth, right, uh, Theodoric, mm-hmm. who was uh, actually, as those barbarian kings went, he was probably one of the best, if not the best, of the barbaric kings of Rome. Uh, and governed through a guy named Cassiodorus, who was his principal, sort of his prime minister, if you like. And Cassiodorus, as you know, founded his own monastery after he left uh, Theodoric's service. So he was surrounded by good, good men and was, I think, trying to be a good ruler of the Italians, although the Goths held the Italians in contempt. But young Benedict saw... Um, you know, just the excesses of Rome. Like, like, if you, are you familiar with Kazantzakis' biography of Saint Francis? It's the same. It's the same story in a lot of respects. Saint Francis, who is a young man, goes to Rome, thinking he's going to find a holy city, thinking he's going to Jerusalem, and, steer, and still, instead, he finds brothels and filth and sacrilege yeah. and uh, paganism and broth, uh, 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 violence and he's so repulsed by it that of course he leaves Rome to escape um a very sinful place so i think possibly you know to go to your question it, and of course we're all speculating now but that's right. been what what sh- shaped in young benedict this fervent desire to try to create a community that really did live out the gospel mm-hmm. and really did uh manifest the or show the promise that the gospel what the to, to try to live out the teachings of Jesus in a way that uh made manifest the wisdom of those teachings and that brought mm-hmm. about the salvation of souls
1: right um and I think according to the the same that same tradition of, of stories. He, he left Rome, um, having been quite disappointed with what he found there, of course, as, as you mentioned. Um, and he, he went to live in a cave for a while from, from what I've read. Um, and, um, this is sort of a story with uh, what I think is a bit of humorous twist. I, um, in a sense, I feel bad for, Benedict. He, he goes to escape the the paganism of the city and the wickedness of the city. He's just tired of people. Um, uh, I guess a lot of us have been there, right? Um, and so he goes to live in this cave, but uh, the the strange man living in a cave draws so much attention that people are just flocking to him to, to meet him. And um, eventually, um, a group of monks came and asked him, uh, while he's still in that cave to to be their abbot, um, and Benedict resisted at first, but eventually he kind of relents and um, um, and joins them. But that that also did not go very well. Um, so he goes from Rome, uh, perhaps having these high expectations of what life in Rome would be like, and then goes to live, um, uh, sort of uh, in seclusion for a while and becomes a an abbot, and that didn't. Go all that well either, from what I understand. How how did his first attempt at being an abbot suit Benedict, Um, and then what what did he have to learn from that?
0: Well, you know, again, I think
1: that uh, this tradition,
0: as as given to us really by Gregory, was in a way a kind of. uh, He has these various stories about him, which are all, I think, clearly intended to uh, do exactly what you're saying, shape his eventual character and his rule. And one of the things, of course he, and it's like, almost like, uh, you know, pilgrim who goes through all of these in in Bunyan's progress, who goes through all these stages Mm -hmm. in order to, uh, be, you know, be refined as a soul. So yes, he, he goes, lives in a cave all alone and that's not, uh, that has its own problems being a hermit or being, Mm -hmm. lonely and so and then these uh these kind of strange monks and i think we'll probably get to this early in the rule where he describes the four kinds of monks Mm -hmm. these monks are kind of described these four kinds of monks are in a way described in this story that gregory tells about benedict and how he has this experience of all these different kinds of monkish experience or this, so it's not just theoretical for Benedict. He really experiences these types of monastic uh, expression in his world, mm-hmm. and all of it, both, and you see it in the rule. All of it points him in the direction of the cenobitic community, the the wisdom of the you know Pacomian cenobitic tradition and that's what the rule really is all about is trying to if if you read this as a monk or as a prospective monk it's it's really the persuasive if you like argument for why the cenobitic life is better than the iter ide- or or hermetic life i mean hmm. and Benedict is convicted of this
1: Right. And and we will get into a, a discussion of those four different types of monks. Um it it's interesting because as um as we've done several episodes in this season of the Commons, um I talked about uh Saint John Chrysostom and uh St. Ambrose and um now it feels like we're coming back to this uh this same theme where uh, Saint John Chrysostom and Saint Ambrose both were were essentially compelled into their their positions as as bishops um not necessarily men who were looking for that office um in fact sometimes even um uh, and it's hard to know whether these stories are you know apocryphal or um factual or whatever but um even sometimes compelled by force or <laughs> threat of mm-hmm. imprisonment you know that, that mm-hmm. you have to become the bishop um and here's saint benedict goes off to be by himself and then is compelled to be an abbot and it goes horribly wrong in a sense of uh, are um, one of my favorite stories again, whether factual or not, I still love the story is uh, where that same group of monks, um, who initially commissioned him to be their abbot. He, he warned them that he didn't think that he was well suited for this. And it was after a relatively short time, with Benedict as their abbot that they tried to, to kill him, I think tried to poison his wine. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. um, needless to say, he disbanded that, that first monastery, uh, that first, uh, band of monks, but, um, but, but Benedict didn't, he didn't give up after that first disaster. It, it, as you said, it, it did show him what kinds of men were, were out there, what kinds of monks there were, um, but he went on, of course, to uh to to found to establish I believe it was twelve monasteries with twelve monks each. Right. Um and and it's for that great effort that, that Benedict is referred to as the father of Western monasticism. But um and and you've already alluded to uh the barbarian rulers and and a bit of what was going on in Rome. Um but why was monasticism so important at this particular point in history uh, at least at at benedict's in benedict's time
0: yeah well you know i mean monasticism comes from the east of course and by the time benedict comes along it's probably already at least 200 250 years old and so he inherited uh, a very rich tradition and one that also had very strong opinions that he ended up promulgating and sharing i mean if you know, the uh, Saint Basil, who was a great monastic in the Eastern tradition, um, also was a huge champion of communities, and and was actually wrote was uh, was really more strongly, I think, against uh, hermit hermit the uh, hermetical or hermetic the hermitage uh, uh, the single uh, sort of like Saint Anthony man going into the desert to become. Holy, he wrote powerfully against that kind of a of an individual. So uh, Benedict inherits all of this, but but I would say that probably in his situation or in the West, the tradition was, uh, I don't know, you know, I'm stepping out, and just speculating on this, but in the East, we the the theory is is that monasticism really took off after, uh, Christianity became, uh, the official religion of the empire after Constantine, uh, because of course that brought into the church, uh, suddenly dramatically enormous number of pagans who, uh, converted, uh, for a whole range of reasons. But one, of course, reason to convert was so that you could hold an office, so that you could get ahead in society. And, and so the era of the fathers and of the martyrs where to become a Christian was, I mean, you had to be an all in, full in Christian to want to do that because there, there were no extrinsic rewards for being a Christian in the uh, Roman Empire. Now there were all extrinsic rewards, so people could become Christian for a variety of reasons, not just because they wanted to become a disciple of Christ. The Western Empire, of course, is—so monasticism in the East was a desire on the part of people like St. Anthony and uh, those that followed him into the desert to— Reform the church, if you like, and, and bring about a pure expression, a more honest and authentic expression of christian the Christian faith, whereas in the West it was often a, truly an effort to escape uh, a really violent society that was in collapse and to create these uh, um, kind of safe havens if you like um, where also not only Christianity, but where culture, I mean, this is where I mentioned Cassiodorus. This is where Cassiodorus came in. His monastery down in Calabria, which was formed around the same time as Benedict, uh, it had a huge, I mean, one of his works of his monks was to preserve the literary tradition of the ancient world and uh, Mm -hmm. preserve that culture. So the the impetus for monasticism in the West, I, I suspect, was quite different from what it was in the East, although it followed in the footsteps of Pachomius and Basil and the others who had sort of paved the way in the East and already had, I mean, you know, we're going to get to the rule. Benedict, uh, modern scholars now believe actually that uh, his rule is very derivative, particularly from a rule called the rule of the master, which preceded it slightly, and it's three times as long as the rule of Benedict, but that whole opening section, the whole prologue is virtually pulled entirely from the uh, rule of the master. You know, but like like the icons of this world, like the icons of the ancient world, these are not, there was no, there was nothing thought to be v- virtuous about the originality of a monastic rule. Every monastery had its own rules, and they borrowed <laughs> freely from one another in order to create a rule that fit their monastery and uh, that they thought, you know, superior. So, you know, Benedict's rule is pulling from a lot of sources probably. And we know it's pulling from the rule of the master. Uh, Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we love it because the, the tone of it is so, well, first, because it's concise, easy to read, as you've already pointed out. It's beautifully... Right expressed, but also because its tone is much less. Um, he leaves a lot more up to the abbot. He, he's much more respectful of the individual differences and vagaries of human nature of mm-hmm. the monks, and it, it's a much more loving, compassionate, uh, gentle kind of rule than mm-hmm. some of the other rules, which are some of them are really quite severe.
1: And I I wonder if, um, if, if some of that moderation and gentleness that we find in, uh, the rule of St. Benedict, uh, I wonder if some of that, and, and again, I'm speculating here, if it, if it rises from the early struggles that he noticed when he attempted to be an abbot that first time with that yeah. group of monks that commissioned him from the cave, um, perhaps that was sort of a, a wake up call for him. And, um, I mean I guess it's possible that they tried to kill him because he was too severe, you know. Um um he was a a, a hard abbot perhaps that first time around. I I don't know, but um That's a good he well, he does. Yeah, that's that's a good insight. I I uh, I like that thought that maybe they
0: they taught him a little bit about the difficulty of ruling human nature. <laughs>
1: um maybe. I, I could be completely wrong uh as far as how it happened, but it's Uh, It's an interesting possibility, but I've always appreciated that in reading through his rule, uh, where even even the jobs um, that have to be done in a certain monastery, he he kind of he gives advice to the abbot that you know certain jobs, this one might be good for those who are um, uh, physically not as strong, or someone who's older, or someone who is having trouble adjusting to monastery life, and so on. So yeah, there's there's a great deal of um, gentleness to the rule. Yeah,
0: there is a lot of flexibility granted the abbot. I mean, the abbot, of course, his. Uh, on the other hand, I mean, you, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, Brian. But on the other hand, you could say that the rule also reflects the fact that uh, the the abbot had to rule. I mean, everything was referred to the abbot, and right, the, and that the whole effort of the monastery is just is to kill annihilate, if you like, willfulness, individualism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I mean, look at the three cardinal virtues of the monastery. You know, they're obedience first, Mm -hmm. silence, and humility. Well, Mm -hmm. if you look at those three, they all really have to do with humility, but he puts obedience first. Obedience to whom? To the abbot. Why? Because Mm -hmm. the abbot stands in place of Christ. And when the Mm -hmm. abbot says, do this, you hear it as if Christ is saying to you, do this. So there's also that experience, I think, taught him that, uh, you know, and the whole issue of how you become inducted. remember, you know, you have spent f- a few days in the guest house, you move into the novitiate after six months, or, you know, I'm probably misremembering this, but, you know, the whole rule is read through to you and you, if you agree to it, then you're allowed to stay for you know three more months. Then it's all read all over again to you. And if you still agree to it, you're allowed to stay another you know, six months or something. And then the final time it's read all through to you and you absolutely agree to it, you sign the parchment that says you commit yourself to the rule. And then after that, you can no longer leave the monastery. You basically sign yourself over.
1: Yeah, because that's another of the the pillars of the monastic life was stability, right? Absolutely. That they had to stay put. Um back to your four monks question, right? Yeah, uh, right. Um and that would that w- that would take on particular significance with each rereading because you're getting to know who this abbot is, right? Good point. Absolutely. You're hearing hearing the rule read again, and you're going, wait a minute. Okay, this guy has all of that authority. So um, given that so much was left to the abbot, it would give the initiates a a lot to think about, um, given that they would be in that monastery, in that monastic community for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. If you think about the way monasteries you know, most
0: of them that we know about came into being, it was because of the, uh, because a group of men, usually young men were attracted to an older man who had great spiritual wisdom and right. power. And and they basically became his, uh, his apprentices. I mean, they wanted to learn the spiritual life from someone who had succeeded in their eyes in, in leading the spiritual life. So for, for a monastery starting out it wasn't as if it was going to be that you know they were there because they wanted to obey the sterets or the spiritual father or leader right. and right. Uh, but once they're established you know how do you keep that how do you keep that relationship moving forward as abbots mm-hmm. die and new abbots take their place and as the monastery grows well you need you know you need a rule
1: mm-hmm. and uh Right. And, and it even kind of outgrew, um, uh, but, well, in a sense, Benedict kind of, um, I know St. Francis, uh, when he wrote his rule by the end of his life, recognized that his rule really wasn't significant for how large the Franciscan order had become, but, uh, Benedict kind of hint hints at this as well. Um, or it could be part of what he meant at the end of the rule. He acknowledges that everything he set down is for beginners, which, um, I I remember reading this the first time and being struck by, um, the, the depth of wisdom and discipline, um, that it required. Uh, and, and then at the end (laughs) him saying, you know, this little rule that we've written for beginners. And I thought, Oh boy, you know, um, that's really saying a lot. There's a lot more here than it doesn't feel like a beginner's manual.
0: Um, yeah, but but you're you're right. I mean, he well, the Cynobetic life is a, it's a school for beginners, as he as he described it, or it's a school for you know. I think in his mind, his idea was that it's a school in the sense that you have to go through this school to learn the spiritual life and to be then able to go out alone into the wilderness or to the mountaintop. And at that point, you're spiritually in his mind. And very few people achieve this, but the great saints have achieved this in his mind. And they can be trusted to go alone and be led directly by the Spirit of God. They don't need an abbot. They don't need all of those um, lessons that the school has to teach them they've learned those lessons and they've graduated and now now they're ready to go on and achieve theosis you know achieve oneness with god in a really exalted state uh but of course he 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 like basil would say those who try to do this before going to school or who think they have you know could just go out in the wilderness and 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 do this on their own are fooling themselves. They're just become a law unto themselves. And that's not in the, in in this tradition's view, that is not the way to achieve, you know, theosis or nearness to God. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, um, lately, uh, Benedict has, has come back into more popular conversation, so to speak. Um, a lot of people have been discussing, um, the rule of Saint Benedict and his monasteries, as it relates to our current culture, um, do you think that? And, and I think most of those arguments have come from people who are looking at our cultural climate and and saying, "Well, we need to we need to consider doing what Benedict did, kind of withdrawing and creating these communities um, uh, for for believers." Um, do you think that there are parallels? between our current situation and Benedict's? In other words, do you think that that's a good use of, um, of St. Benedict and his rule given our cur- our uh, current situation?
0: It, um, it's a really good question, but a complicated one because I think, uh, I think it's, we can't under, we can't overestimate, the nature of the challenge of applying Benedictine ideas to, to us in the modern world. I mean, um, for example, in the, in the rule of Benedict, you know, as we've discussed, individually, individuality is acknowledged. We, he, you know, he's very clear about the differences between the individual. But it is not so much uh, celebrated as viewed as problematic, and uh because you know, it, for him, this state of individual individuality or individuation you know it leads to isolation, alienation, and uh, prevents us from really moving toward God and and, t- and it tends to turn us toward the self rather than toward Christ mm-hmm. and this, of course, is anathema to a to, to a monastic I mean for them I mean to repent for a monastic is for all of us is to turn away from ourselves and to Christ but if we live in a culture that celebrates you know individualism and free choice and rights and and uh, has a victim's consciousness and is all about political empowerment and, and it's now even become about self-making and self-identification I mean this is the antithesis of um, what monasticism is all about. So I can see why moderns, modern writers, you know, like Rod Dreyer and others, are sort of reaching out toward this and saying, we need to go in this direction, but we shouldn't over uh, underestimate, pardon me, the, the difficulty of getting f- from where we are to where this is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was a lot easier, I think, um, I mean, this whole monastic idea resonates a lot better with the classical tradition that's informed by, because that is informed by the excesses of individuality, you know, hubris, which we've all heard of, and say the religions of Dionysus, uh, and uh, much more than, say, uh, the poetry of the Romantics or the personal salvation of the Reformation, which we, Mm -hmm. we come after all that, and again, that's an it's a celebration and uh, empowerment of the self. I'm not even going to Nietzsche and all of that. So anyway, it's, it, it's a great, it, we can look at it and, and admire it, but I think it's uh, extremely difficult for us to, uh, to apply it to the change conditions of our times mm-hmm. Uh because our mind is in a different place, our whole mental framework is it's no longer a classical one and by, and, and you know we, we can move on from this, but I'm thinking too that this was what makes it a great thing for you guys to study and for the students to look at or read in, in, in a classical Christian school because they can then come to maybe to some extent appreciate how much how much more accessible this kind of a path to to God is to a classical minded person than it is to a modern person. Mm-hmm. I don't know, does That's that make it, sense? Does that make it, sense?
1: It, it does. It does. I, I was reading um, a bit from a a book by uh, Timothy Cardong, who's um, I believe he's an abbot at a Benedictine monastery, um, and he wrote sort of a commentary on the Rule of Benedict. And one of the things that he observed. Almost in a, a side comment, it seemed was that uh, he he was talking about the different um, uh, steps that an abbot would go through in a case that might lead to, say, excommunication of of a monk, which obviously is a very serious matter. But um, he just expressed uh, Cardong did expressed the um, the trouble that uh, monasteries face with this now because of um, monks coming in who have grown up in this culture of celebrated individualism and how at times it seems that uh, they can excommunicate themselves, yeah. um, you know, that it doesn't even have to be done as an act of discipline, that that getting them to invest in um, the monastic community in life um, in the way that Benedict would have intended is hard enough as it is So the threat of excommunication, um, is not, not nearly what it once was. It's kind of like, um, you know, when a student now, um, hears that Socrates chose the poison rather than exile, that seems so strange. Um, because the idea that their place, their city, their community meant that much is, is just very foreign to our ears now.
0: Yeah. Good, Um, good analogy. I think you're right. I mean, because now, now there are so many other cities that you could go to and have a good life.
1: Right, <laughs> right, right. So, um, yeah. Now let's let's jump into um, the rule itself. Um, we'll start with a, a big general question. I've heard you say this at Cersei conferences before, and um, I, I agree with you that, that the rule is beneficial to just about everyone, not just monks and nuns. Um, I've heard you say that before. So let me, let me give you a chance to elaborate here. Um, why do you think that is? Why is the rule so beneficial and such an important work, even, even to those not choosing a monastic life?
0: Well, to me, it, and this, you you referred to Socrates, Socrates, uh, you know, would say the ideal is important, even if it's unachievable. I mean, because it holds out to us this, this goal toward which we can move, even though, you know, we know that we, we may never reach it, or maybe it is unachievable, but it still gives us a direction. It's like, you know, celestial navigation, right? It's the star by which we can, we can guide our, our ship other than just letting it be blown around. And I think the rule does that to to some extent. I mean, just like the epistles do that. I mean, all wisdom in a way, literature does that. And I regard the rule as just a, a really wonderful example of the wisdom literature that we should all be studying and reading constantly. Uh, so in that sense, and it also it gives us an illustration, it's a practical, it, it, it's a very, uh, not just an intelligent individual and saintly individual, but a, but a whole saintly tradition of how to apply the teachings of Christ to very specific rules of life and how you live. So it gives us an example of how to do that, which we, which we really need. Uh, and, you know, when you talk about those early monkish experiences that he had, I mean, what he's finding is that these people who, you know, there's three, two or three monks who are often in, in the wilderness, well, why do they reject him? Why do they even try to kill him? the most unchrist like thing they could conceivably do It's because they're just they're just worldly people living out in the woods uh thinking that they're doing uh you know thinking that they're being holy or thinking that they're they're being good Christians when in fact they're being just the opposite. well what the rule gives us is uh a real proven uh ruler, if you like, measured to hold up against ourselves and to and to show us how what poor Christians we're being, how we lack humility, how we're not willing to obey, we're not willing to exercise good zeal with regard to our brothers and sisters. We're not in a competition with them to see who can be last. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. The rule has all those those great sort of uh it holds up a mirror to us and shows us how how deficient we are, and therefore gives us an impetus, you know, to repent, to turn away from ourselves constantly and return to Christ. And uh, that's, it's one thing to say to, especially young people, to all of us, theoretically, this is what we should be doing. But it's, it's much more powerful As if, as when, as when, if you're in a, if you're in a tradition that insists upon making a confession in front of a a priest or a spiritual elder or father, the beauty of that is that the the good confessor will uh, point out very specific ways in which you are, you're not being honest with yourself. You're not being honest with God. You're not really telling the truth about your selfishness. Your your greed, your lust, those those things that are, you know, really holding your you down in your spiritual life, and, the, and what the rule does is it gives you some really hard things to hold up to yourself and say, "Am I really doing these things?" Uh, mm-hmm. And if not, I am falling short of the glory of God. I'm not doing mm-hmm. what Jesus told me to do, and and therefore, I can't expect to have the rewards the spiritual rewards that come from being a true disciple of christ mm-hmm.
1: and the, the the rule is in that sense um very difficult because it it causes us to ask all those questions that we sometimes don't want to ask right so um in a sense <laughs> in a sense the reasons why we should read the rule are often the reasons why we don't really want to Um, as as a lot of um, acts of spiritual discipline are that way, right? They're almost too revealing for our own comfort, um, which is why we need them. Um, And I
0: would say, too, because I'm sure many Protestants would say, well, why do I read the rule? Well, I would say for the same reason you read the epistles of St. Paul. I mean, he's basically writing the rules for the early churches, right? And a mm -hmm. lot of people, especially in a lot of the modern churches, there are parts of the epistles they just can't read because it's too, it's either not politically correct or it's too, it's too painful to read it. And I think as Christians, our view ought to be, we need to read those passages even more frequently. Right. And even the ones that challenge us personally, uh, it's important that we be challenged that way. Otherwise, we have really, we can find nothing to repent. And if we can't, re- and if we have nothing to repent, then of course the the forgiveness that christ offers us uh through his death and and through his eucharist it's meaningless we don't need it i mean it, the whole our whole faith just washes out if we aren't willing to face ourselves with complete and brutal honesty and repent of our selfishness anyway sorry <laughs> come,
1: come. Right. no 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 that's okay um i uh... I want to, I want to connect that now with, um, what is the longest chapter I believe in the rule is, um, the chapter on humility. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's in that, that chapter that Benedict describes what he calls the steps to humility. And of course there are 12 of them. I think there had to be, right? Just like there were 12 um,
0: monasteries with 12 monks in each monastery, Right.
1: Right. <laughs> he couldn't stop at 11. Uh, right. yeah. Um, and if there was a thirteenth, he would have had to leave it out. Uh, um, probably. No. <laughs> uh, but Is but why just, was humility?
0: How cynical we moderns are.
1: <laughs> I know, I know. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That was completely unhelpful, wasn't it? Um, wh- why was humility such an important topic for Benedict? I mean, most of the uh, for those of you who haven't read it before, most of the chapters are very, very short. I mean, you're talking a matter of a, a page or so. Or, or two um, sentences, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Some even even shorter. And then suddenly you have this chapter on humility and he, and he goes on for what comparatively feels like for quite a while. Yeah. Um, so why was humility such an important topic for Benedict and, and the monks living under his rule?
0: Well, I think uh, relating it to what we were just talking about, I mean... Re- the, the, the core to me of the whole, the first domino of the Christian way of life is repentance. I mean, the first thing that we, when John the Baptist preaches, the first thing we hear in the gospel is he's saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. The first words out of Christ's mouth is repent. I mean, that should be a big, a big uh, tip off to us that repentance is where it all begins. And, it, unless you are genuinely humble and see yourself as the first among sinners and and someone who can never really get to the bottom of how desperately wicked they are in their thoughts as well as in their deeds uh, you can't even put your you can't put your foot on that path and so I think theologically uh, speaking repentance is I mean, humility is what, what pays the way or makes repentance possible. So in that sense, Mm -hmm. it's crucial. But if you think also, then if you go back to life in community, um, you know, back to his three, you know, his three cardinal, what are the three cardinal characteristics of a, of a a monastery, you know, their obedience, silence, and humility. But in fact, and if you read through his 12 steps, obedience uh, to the will of God, obedience to the injunctions of the abbot, those are two of his steps. I mean, they're part of Mm -hmm. humility. Silence the same way. He has a lot to say in the the section you're referring to about restraint of the way you speak and keeping silent. Uh, Mm -hmm. So really in a way both obedience and silence and almost everything else is subsumed under, under humility. If you're genuinely humble and then he gives very specific, um, you know, what you've, you know, this section, I mean, he doesn't want to hear laughter, which is something would be completely contrary to a sort of modern view. Well, where's there joy for us? If not laughter, but our laughter, uh, is not always an indication, I think, from St. Benedict's view, of real joy. Uh, mm-hmm. Speaking gently and wisely to others. Um, you know, the humility and bearing in heart, uh, walking with downcast eyes, even. Uh, in the Orthodox tradition, of course, uh, we say the Jesus prayer constantly. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I mean, it, it, and that is, you know, the hesychast said this with their breath. They said it constantly the whole idea to keep them humble in their minds and always on the threshold of repentance, always repenting. So, I mean, you, I think, you know, go back to those earlier experiences you've talked about too. I mean, the, uh, the experience with those, with those recalcitrant uh, fellows who invited him to be their abbot. I mean, what they lacked was humility, I mean they weren't willing to uh, to be submissively obedient to their abbot they they were willful and willfulness is back to our discussion about individuality I mean willfulness is like it's like pride right it's the root of all evil it it lies at the at the like a snake coiled at our roots uh, holding us back, preventing us from advancing in the spiritual life and the only way you can you know sort of release that snake or 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 advance in the in the uh, in the spiritual life according to Benedict and, and you know really all of those in this monastic wisdom literature tradition is by is by being humble always coming back to humility
1: mm-hmm. now i've I've heard you mention before uh, that in your work as a headmaster in the past, you found that the rule of St. Benedict was very helpful. Um, can you, so let's, let's sort of draw into some specific, um, for lack of a better term applications, or at least some things to think about. Um, so you, you tried to, um, at least uh, think through how to apply the, the rule as a headmaster and then most of our audience are classical school teachers or uh, homeschooling parents. So um, talk to us about that. What, what lessons do you think are important for, um, for educators, whatever their context? Uh, what can they take from the life and work of St. Benedict?
0: Well, uh, in the rule, there's something for everybody. And uh, of course, in the rule, you have an interesting nowadays we'd call it a kind of a matrix organization with a head. So it's sort of a combination of a hierarchical organization and a rather flat horizontal organization. Because uh, the abbot is definitely the head, and the whole section early on in the rule he describes the characteristics of the abbot and the responsibilities of the abbot, and he puts those. Really, before anybody else's duties or characteristics, and those are by far the most serious and the most onerous. I mean, he says in one place, um, the abbot shouldn't be the person who's just the highest-ranking person, whoever that is. It's the person who's who's who is wise and who's who is virtuous, who is who shows the most virtue in the community. That's the person who gets elected the abbot. So. In my case, of course, as a headmaster, that section on the abbot was the one that was most interesting to me. You know, what are my responsibilities as the head of the school? Um, I had, uh, in in uh, one of the schools that I headed, I asked the, an art teacher to who had wonderful calligraphy to pro- write a plaque for me, and I put it over the door of my office as I went out. It was over the top of the door. And it was the quote from uh, St. Uh, Bernard of Cluny. It was, it said, uh, notice all things, reprove some things, cherish the brother. And I think this, uh, it's very benedictine to me in its tone. I mean, you notice every, you. you have to be attentive to be a good head of school. You have to be aware of what's happening in every classroom, that every child is safe, that every teacher is nurturing the children and is is um, you know if you're a classical Christian school that they're continuing their own education and that they have a really good grasp of the gospel of Jesus Christ and are very creative and, and orthodox in the way they're applying it in their teaching. I mean, you you know you, you have to notice all things, everything that's going on, even the litter on the sidewalk. You know, you notice it all. You reprove something, some things. You're not. You're not, you're not there to be Mr. Gotcha and try to sort of correct everybody's life. Uh, you understand, as the abbot has to do in Benedict's rule, that we all have our own gifts, that none of us is perfect, and that we will all stumble along the path. Uh, the abbot's job, the head's job, is to you know support people along the path, pick them up when they fall, encourage them love them. But at the same time, you have to also reprove those who are leading others astray or who are, are are doing things which they shouldn't be doing. And you can't back away from that. That's your responsibility. You are the person who has to uh, administer those, those reproofs. But overall, your job, no matter who you're dealing with, is to show them respect and cherish them. You know, some heads are so much better than others at doing this i'm not i'm not uh, you know i've always struggled with uh being able to convey a spirit of of tender love and support to everybody in the community i'm uh, pretty good at reproving i think but not not so good at showing (laughs) that kind of support i have i've known Others though who just had such a gift for doing that, I would imagine that that's the gift that Benedict had, and that's why his, that's why he attracted so many people to his monasteries, and that's why he had such, you know, that's why he was a saint. That's why he had such a loyal following. But that whole idea of cherishing the brethren, it can't be gainsaid.
1: Right, and and even to this day, the question that we discussed with uh the ideas of benedict kind of coming back into conversation they're they're still attractive to us right they still um they still resonate with us we want that kind of um that kind of community um as you said even even though it's a bit harder for us moderns to to live in community together because we're so individualistic there's still that sense of longing for it i think in in just about all of us
0: yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I mean, I, I used to say it in slightly different terms, but, you know, it. Uh, everybody wants to be a leader. Mm-hmm. But a leader can only succeed if if people are good followers. Mm-hmm. And what we often lack in schools isn't good leaders, but people who are, are willing to follow and understand what it means to be a good follower, you know, to to be consultative, to be supportive, to, mm-hmm. you know, Praise publicly, but criticize privately. Not to do backbiting. Not to say unkind things to others. Uh, not to be willful and want your own way. I mean, that's the big. I think <laughs> the hardest thing about reading the Rule of Benedict, if you're ahead head of school, is that uh, it's it's very difficult. In again, in our current condition, present conditions, to stand in front of your faculty and. Read, uh, read to them what is expected of the brothers in a monastery, because mm-hmm. they will look at you and say, you think I'm going to give submissive obedience to you? You think that when you speak, I'm supposed to take these, these words as if they were coming from Christ? Uh, I mean, it sounds for the head of school to even suggest such a thing sounds so arrogant and overblown. Mm-hmm. And the reality is, is that, you know, our teachers, they come out of a culture where uh, they're, they're like those first few monks that we talked about that Benedict had, right? You know, they'll support you as long as you are uh, either, uh, you know, advancing their careers or uh, because for many of them, much of the school is about them. It's not even about the students. And it's, you know... How, how happy am I in this environment? How mm-hmm. is my career being advanced in this environment? Is this environment going in the direction I think it should go in? So everybody's got an own, their own idea about what should be happening in the school, and it becomes really not, not difficult but impossible mm-hmm. to lead a school like that. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, a that's you know a few years ago Peter, a friend of mine, Peter Townsend and I, after we spent some time at the. Motherhouse in Latrobe, uh, the Benedictine Motherhouse, and met with the abbot there. It was a wonderful experience, and then we offered uh, at the College of Preachers in Washington uh, this workshop for independent school heads of school and others in the school, and it was a, it was very interesting. Uh, of course, the only people who came to it are probably the people who are willing to listen and read the Rule of Benedict and, and seriously consider it. But it was i think generally gen, generally felt by those who attended that uh the rule as beautiful as it was was simply uh, it, it was in, we, we, it was incapable of being applied to independent schools hmm.
1: because of this reason of unwillingness to to follow
0: well and and willfulness you know i mm-hmm. mean of course the thing is is that when you talk about bene uh, you know independent schools generally you're not even speaking out of a christian tradition really you know it's right. it's uh and in the case of benedict i mean there really was a sense that uh the abbot could stand in the place of of christ i mean in my tradition the orthodox tradition the priest stands in that place i mean you ask to be blessed by him when you meet him you kiss his hand it's not him it's more like well i was in the navy you know Naval officers get saluted, but you're always told you're not saluting the man, you're saluting his uniform. you know you're showing respect to the fact you know you're you're an enlisted guy, and if when just an ensign walks by you who's got only one stripe, you still you still owe him a salute because you owe the the uniform he's wearing a salute. He is in a superior position to you, and in some sense, he represents the United States Navy and the United States of America, and that's what you're saluting the well, w- Same way, of course, in a, in a church or in a, in a uh, monastery, the person who is anointed to lead uh, is the person who is standing in the place of Christ and should be obeyed. But even in the rule of Benedict, I mean, he makes provision, remember, for what happens when, when the abbot turns out to be a bad guy. It's not like it, it's not like he, he thinks that could never happen. And right. Of course when that happens, he says, "You know, the bishop has to get involved, uh, and then presumably too the monks themselves they elect their abbots, so they they also have a hand." There were several times in my schools that I genuinely wished I could just go to the faculty and say, "You know, clearly you're not happen- You're not willing to follow me on this." Let's have an election. <laughs> you elect someone who you are willing to follow, and let's follow that person. Uh, of course, that's not how schools are organized. It's usually the board of trustees that does that. Right. But that also happens. You know, I've, I've gone to boards and asked for a vote of confidence. You know, am I am I going in the direction that you want to take this school in, or am I not? And if not, I, I need to find another place. Hmm.
1: Well, and and it does bring to light that principle. It's really hard for us to remember that that a, a promise to obey. Well, I mean, we could use the term vow. Obviously, in a monastery setting, it would be a vow. Um, but a promise to o- obey um, is is one thing, um, but actual obedience when there's disagreement or conflict is an is a, a another matter entirely, right? Yeah. Um, well, and that's that's where the the vow, a vow to obedience, um, is, is fine. Uh, but obedience isn't needed until there's disagreement, right. Until there's conflict or tension of some kind.
0: Yeah, that's right. And then you have to make a very, you know, a really important gut checking decision. You know, I don't, in my career I was the head of schools for 30 years. I, I didn't want to do that anymore. And I finally found a job where I, because I didn't want to be, the CEO anymore. I finally found a job with a company based in Chicago where I could be the chief academic officer reporting to a CEO. I loved that job. And, and I think in fact, I just had a conversation, I've retired from it now, but that that person's still just called me a few hours ago, actually, to talk about something. I was, I think I made a great follower of his, even though we disagreed on a lot of stuff. But only he knew about it. I mean, we'd have our, our Monday morning, you know, C-suite meeting. There'd be four or five of us in the meeting. We'd talk about the direction of the company. And I had no problem in that meeting, you know, arguing with Mac or disagreeing with him. But I, I was, I, you know, I was there from the beginning of the company to the very end of the company when we sold it. I mean, I was never, I was never disloyal to him. I always supported him outside of that particular room. And I supported his decisions, even the ones I didn't agree with. Because to me, that's what my role was to disagree with him. Uh probably, in prime fact we walked, I remember one Monday morning we walked at the meeting and Mac you know put his arm around me or we walking down the hall and he said, Hicks, why do you always argue with me? And uh I looked in and I said, Mac, if I always agreed with you you wouldn't need me around. Why are you paying me all this money just to agree with you? And he was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but that's the kind of, uh, you know, that's what, you, that's what I always looked for in schools. I wanted people who would be really open with me, and if they thought I was making a mistake or doing the wrong thing, I would hear from them about it right away, and they, we, we could talk about it. But I I, I never, those are people I know. Ne- you know, that's how it had to come to me. But so often what happened is they wouldn't have the courage to come to me and talk to me. Instead, they'd talk to their friends or they would talk around behind my back in some way. And then it would create this just festering, mm-hmm. uh, unhappiness in the environment. And that's what, then that is what Benedict is talking about. He wants, he wants joyful monks, monks who are happy to be there. And he also sees too, and this is really true because I found it to be true when I was working with the Maritas, Just the process of obeying when I didn't agree, I found it very liberating and um, comforting in a way. I mean, Mm -hmm. it it, it was like, you know, I can do this even though I don't really agree with this, but this is my leader. I've got to trust him and I've got to give him the same support I would want him to give me if I were leading and he didn't agree in in the direction I was setting. it's as simple as you know doing unto others right right right
1: well david thank you so much for joining me for this episode um i could i could go on and and talk with you for hours more there's so much i even left out some things that i really wanted to ask you about um so maybe we'll have to carve out time at another Cersei event to for the two of us to indulge in uh this this mutual love of st benedict and his rule but but thank you for taking your time out uh to talk with us today
0: thank you brian it was a pleasure it's a rich topic and i hope it goes on in many uh classrooms it's wonderful
1: i hope so as well
0: even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things